0: You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. All righty. Let's open our Bibles to uh, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel, the ninth chapter. Um, for the last couple of months, <clears throat> we've been working our way through. Um, This book of Daniel, and this morning we've come to chapter 9, and chapter 9 contains uh, one of the most important passages in the Bible when it comes to Bible prophecy. It's most commonly known as Daniel's 70 weeks. Has anybody heard of that? Let me see your hand. You've heard of Daniel's 70 weeks, Daniel's 77. Well, if you haven't, you're going to find out about it this morning, and uh, if you have, you're going to find out a little bit more The uh, the prophecy part of Daniel 9 is found at at the end of the chapter, and it's really a chapter that is is about prayer. It's Daniel's prayer for the most part, and then the prayer seems to be connected with what we looked at last week in Daniel chapter 8, Uh, this vision that Daniel received about two time periods in the future, uh, Daniel's future, that would be very difficult for his people, the Jewish people. We discover one of those difficult times happened about 370 years later, around 167 B.C. through the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes. The other difficult time is yet to come in the future and will come through another world leader commonly known as the Antichrist. And so these revelations were so disturbing to Daniel that at the end of the chapter it says he literally became ill you got to remember, Daniel, uh, he's pushing 90 about this point, and, uh, you know, so he's getting up there in years, but instead of, of taking a break from the, the whole matter, Daniel does two things. He, he doubles up on his study, and he intensifies his times of prayer with God. And out of this study and, and prayer, God reassures Daniel that he's got it all in his hands And he also reveals to Daniel even more about the future, and that future centers around this 70 weeks or 77s vision. So chapter 9 is divided into three parts. You have, first of all, Daniel's prayer, and then you have God's answer, and then in that answer comes God's decree. So let's jump into verse 1, Daniel's prayer. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I Daniel understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And so, I turned to the Lord, and I pleaded with Him in prayer and petition, in fasting and sackcloth and in ashes. Now, apparently, Daniel's study of Scripture, in that study, God directed him. God directed him to portions of Scripture that would comfort him, in particular the prophecies found in Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, which were written about 100 years before Daniel. And um, Daniel was was probably deported to Babylon in the first three waves of the deportation around 605 B.C. And according to verse 1 of this chapter, it was the first year of Darius' reign. That would be 538 B.C. So that means this, that 67 years had passed by. And in this prophecy of Jeremiah, Daniel discovered it would be 70 years and it would be over. So all of a sudden, it occurs to him, there's only three more years left in this, this 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied, 100 years prior to that. Again, that would be a pretty exciting thing. And although Daniel doesn't return back with the Jews and his calling and mission is in Babylon, obviously he, he was very, very elated at that. And that makes what he does next a little bit uh, confusing. After he made this discovery that there's only three years left, He begins this period of earnest prayer and fasting. Again, that seems like a strange thing to do. I mean, why fast and pray for what God has said He will unconditionally do? Seventy years. That's the mark. Nothing's going to change it. There's no conditions. My people will be brought back to their land. Why not just then sit back on the portico with a glass of lemonade Wait for God to do what He said He is going to do. Why fast and pray? Well, the answer to that question reveals a couple things about prayer, two things specifically. First of all, God uses the means of prayer to fulfill His sovereign will. Daniel knew that although God certainly works according to His own plans and timetable, He nonetheless does so through people through their acts of obedience, in particular, through their prayers. Daniel saw that his responsibility was to ask God to fulfill his sovereign will because he recognized that God utilizes the means of prayer to bring about his sovereign will. In essence, Daniel's prayer was God's means or method to deliver his people from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Now, my finite mind, I don't understand that at all. I don't understand how divine sovereignty, God's seven-year decree, and human responsibility, Daniel's prayer, somehow work together to bring about God's plan. I don't know how that works, but I know it to be true because we see this over and over and over in the Scripture. Scripture teaches you have not because you ask not, right? But it also teaches that whatever you have, it's because sovereign God willed it before you asked for it. Now, that's a mystery, a mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, but it still stands that Scripture teaches God uses the means of prayer to bring about what He has sovereignly decreed. He doesn't need to, but He's chosen to do that. We'll find out why at the end. Secondly, prayer is fundamentally asking God to do His will. Daniel's reading through Jeremiah, and all of a sudden he makes a discovery of God's will. Seventy years. So he sets out to pray that will, to pray God's will. And so prayer is in essence asking God to do what He already said He's, not, he's going to do but won't do unless you ask Him. Now the Apostle John says something very similar in the first, first, his first letter. He said this is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and we know if He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of Him. So, God's Word reveals God's will. When we pray God's will, we have confidence in prayer. And that's why effective prayer is always married to God's Word. So, find out God's will and ask for it. That's what prayer is asking God to do His will. Find out what God's will is and find out what's God's will for your marriage and pray it. What's God's will for your children? Pray it in faith. What's God's will for the people in your life? Pray that in faith. What's God's will for the mountain people in Central Asia or the mariners in Southeast Asia? What's God's will for them? Pray it in faith. Prayer is fundamentally asking God to do His will. Now, since we are going to spend a good deal of time with the last third of the chapter, we're not going to take up every detail of Daniel's prayer that follows in verses 4 through 19. We are going to read through it. I'll make a couple more comments about prayer at the end, and then we'll turn our attention to Daniel's 77. So, let's look in verse 4, and just kind of, as we go along, note a few things in your mind about this and see if See if they jive with my observations at the end. All right, here we go. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, we and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we've sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have "'Rebelled against Him. "'We have not obeyed the Lord our God "'or kept the laws He gave us "'through His servants, the prophets. "'All Israel has transgressed Your law "'and turned away from and refusing to obey You. "'Therefore, the curses and the sworn judgments "'written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, "'have been poured out upon us "'because we sinned against You. "'You have fulfilled the words spoken against us "'and against our rulers "'by bringing on us this great disaster "'under the whole heaven. "'Nothing has ever been done "'like what has been done in Jerusalem.'" Just as it was written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, and yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving our attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything He does, and yet we have not obeyed Him. Now here's the, the, the prayer pivots here. Now, Lord our God who brought Your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for Himself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned and we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all of Your righteous acts, turn away Your anger and Your wrath from Jerusalem, Your city, Your holy hill. Our sins and iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and Your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of Your servant. For Your sake, Lord, Look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give your, our God, and hear. Open our eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, heal. Hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. What a prayer, huh? All right, well, three things real quick from that to add to the two already about prayer. Did you notice that going through this, Daniel identifies himself with the people he's praying for, which I find a a bit unusual, a real lesson here for us in prayer. Daniel led an exemplary life in wicked Babylon for 67 years, and there was never any evidence at all that he joined the Jewish exiles in their rebellion against God. But in spite of all this, all the way through the prayer, Daniel goes, we, we, we. We, we. You know, if we were praying that, you know, we might say, these people, these people, these people, right? That's what got Moses into trouble, didn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it did. He does not look down on the people and say, these people have sinned. These people have rebelled. These people have turned away. Rather, what does he do? He says, we have sinned. We have rebelled. We have turned away. And why is that? Because he realizes that, you know, compared to the people, he's a saint, right? But compared to God, He's still a sinner in need of mercy. Jesus taught us that the religious person prays, God, I thank you, I'm not like these sinners. But the repentant person prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, the only way you can avoid looking down on people is looking up to God. And when you do, you realize You've fallen short of His glory, and your only hope is every person's hope—God's mercy—and that mercy comes to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Second thing Daniel does in his prayer is he uh, he focuses on God's character and the people's need to repent. I'll sum it up for you in verses four through six. He basically says, "God, you're you're great, you're awesome, you're a covenant-keeping and loving God, whom we have sinned against, rebelled against, turned away from and not listened to. Then in verses 7 through 8, he says, God, you are a God who is righteous. He means this, you're always right, we are wrong, and we deserve the shame we feel for being wrong. Then in verses 9 through 11, he says, God, you're merciful and forgiving. And we've rebelled against you, and not kept your laws and transgressed and turned away from and refused to obey. And then finally in verses 12 through 14, Daniel says, God, you're a a faithful God. Do you notice that all the way through, God, you're great, awesome, covenant-keeping, loving. You are righteous. You are merciful. You are forgiving, and you are faithful. In his prayer, he's focusing on God's character and then calling the the people, praying for the people in the light of that to, to repent. The last thing he does is he pleads for God to act for his own glory. Do you notice that? Not just for the sake of the people, but he asked God, do this for Your name's sake. You brought us out of Egyptian idolatry for Your own glory. Now bring us out of Babylonian captivity for Your glory. Even though our sins have made Your city an object of scorn, for Your sake, Lord, look with favor upon the city in which Your sanctuary rests. We're not asking, and this is the statement We're not asking because we are righteous, but because you are merciful. So hear and act for your sake. Because your city, your people, they bear your name. Now, you can't go wrong praying a prayer with these five observations, especially this last one. Lord, I'm not only just asking for them or for me, but for your glory, for your name's sake. Lord, act. And that's exactly what What happened? Look in the next verse. While I was still speaking and praying, Daniel says, and confessing, notice, my sin and the sin of the people of Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for His holy hill, Jerusalem, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me, and he said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And this vision now comes in the form of a decree from God. And here's that decree. We're going to come back and look at this in depth. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin to atone for wickedness, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this, from the time the Word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. And it will be rebuilt with streets and with a trench, but in times of trouble. After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice an offering, and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out upon him. Now, all right, that's a lot, man. These verses are really key to interpreting Bible prophecy, because whatever somebody believes about Bible prophecy, about the end times, really hangs on their understanding of these verses, and that's why tens of thousands of pages of commentary have been written about these verses. I think more commentaries and, 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 and papers have been written on these verses than almost anything else in all of the Bible. And among those, they, are, they espouse sev- several different viewpoints, and it would take really weeks to drill down on them, and I'm just going to assume this morning uh, and I have recommendations if you want that, but I'm going to assume this morning that, you know, you would prefer the main points of what I think is a reasonable Christ-centered interpretation of this passage. And so that's what I'm going to attempt to give you in 20 minutes. Let's reset the table here. Daniel's fasting. He's praying for the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, the exile's imminent return to Jerusalem from Babylon in response to his prayer. God sends the angel Gabriel to give more insight as to what will happen in the future to his people. Verse 24, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. Now, here's the first thing that's important. Sevens Here refer to sabbatical years, which took place every seventh year. So, 77s would be 77-year period, or what? 490 years. It's an important number. By the end of this 490-year period, verse 24 says several things will have taken place. Transgression finished, sin put to an end, wickedness atoned for, everlasting righteousness brought in. Vision and prophecy sealed up, and the most holy place anointed. Now, there are several possible interpretations for some of these items, but it's not very hard to see if you've been a Christian very long, that all of these things for sure, all of these statements point to, in one way or another, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And... uh, we know this, that he, he came to, what, die for our transgressions, atone for our wickedness, that through Him we might die to sin and be raised to a new life of everlasting righteousness. That's three of them. Christ came to, the fourth one, seal up vision and prophecy. What does that mean? Well, a letter in the ancient world was sealed with a wax and a stamp for many reasons, but one of them was because the author had finished what he wanted to say everything He intended to say. And that's what Christ is. That's who Christ is. The writer of Hebrews says, in the past God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us through His Son. Jesus is God's final word to us. Now the last phrase, anoint the most holy place, also speaks of Jesus. Um, The most holy place refers to the most inner part of the Jewish um, worship facilities the tabernacle in the wilderness the temple in Jerusalem there was three places an outer court a holy place and then there was the most holy place and inside the most holy place was the ark of the covenant on top of this box of wood overlaid with gold was a lid on top of the lid two cherubim angel went up and God said in exodus 25 right there is where my presence will come and meet with my people Well, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the most holy place because He is the place where people come to meet with God. He is the place that human beings come into the presence of God and therefore the anointing of the most holy place is the anointing of Jesus which took place at His baptism when the Holy Spirit descended upon Him. The reason for sharing those things with you is I think it's important To understand that Daniel 77s ultimately is about Jesus. We have a lot of people making them about a lot of other things. But ultimately, this prophecy is to direct us to the Lord Jesus as all Scripture is to. Now, in verse 25, Gabriel offers more information on all this. A bit more clarification. Know and understand this. From the time the Word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets in a trench, but in times of trouble, referring to Jerusalem. Now again, seven sevens, seven, seven sabbatical years. Seven sevens is 49, 62 sevens is 434. So, In the first seven, Jerusalem is rebuilt, he says. 49 years, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And then 434 years after that, the anointed one will come. Together, they equal 483 years. So Gabriel tells Daniel, from the time a decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem and the coming of the anointed one will be 483 years. So when then, the next question is, When did that decree go out to rebuild Jerusalem? Well, the answer to that question, um, and to answer that, it's kind of important to realize that, that the return of the Jews to Jerusalem took place over a period of several years and six Persian kings. It began with the Persian king Cyrus, who in 539 issued a decree to rebuild the sanctuary, the temple in Jerusalem. And the final Persian king, Artaxerxes I, in 457 B.C., who issued a decree that permitted the rebuilding of the city itself. And this last decree is the one decree that put the 77s into motion, the 62 that were left. Seven sevens plus 62 sevens from the decree of Artaxerxes in 457 B.C. brings you to what? 26 A.D. Adding in the single year zero between 1 B.C. and 1 A.D., you're where? 27 A.D. What happened in 27 A.D.? The Anointed One, Jesus the Messiah, began his ministry. Daniel foretold that 483 years prior down to the exact year. Maybe that was too much information too fast. But like, I would be doing a run, you know? It's like, wow. I mean, Daniel 77 demonstrates once again that God is sovereign over history, that He's sovereign over time, past, present, and future. But it also demonstrates that He is truthful, demonstrates the truthfulness of God, that what He writes in His Word is true, and that we can count on it, and that He's completely reliable. He's a God of truth, and if that's true, He's completely trustworthy then, and since He is that trustworthy, should we not entrust all of our life to Him Amen. instead of just a part? You know, a lot of Christians try to do that. I'll give you this, I'll give you that, I'll give you that, but no, I'm, I'm keeping this right here. I got to stay in control of something, God. That's the most irrational thing that you could ever do. The most irrational thing to ever do is to dabble in the things of God. The most rational thing, however, you can do, Romans 12:1 says, is completely offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice. This is your rational or reasonable act of worship. Give yourself completely to Him. You'll be a lot happier. Now, in verse 26, Gabriel offers even more clarity about the 77s. In verse 25, he said, Now notice this, he said the anointed one will come at the end of the seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. He'll come at the end. Then verse 26 says, after the period of the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. Now he will be put to death, literally in the Hebrews, he will be cut off, which reminds me of that great messianic prophecy, Isaiah 53 I think the greatest prophecy about the sufferings of Messiah, Jesus, in all of the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 8, for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, he was punished. So after the 62-7th period, the anointed one will be cut off. Secondly, he'll have nothing. What does that mean? It's a very powerful way, if you think about it, of indicating the utter rejection that Jesus experienced during his passion. I mean, at the end, he had nothing. He was robbed of his clothes. He was abandoned by his friends. He was rejected by his people. And he was forsaken by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had nothing. If it was ever true of a human being on this earth, It was never more true than of Jesus. He had nothing at that point because He went to the cross for you. So after the seven sevens and 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. Now, verse 26, though, says something else takes place in that same time frame. Look at it. The people of the ruler... Who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. So, sometime after the seven sevens and the 62 sevens, when the anointed one is put to death, but before the 70th seven, Jerusalem and the sanctuary will be completely destroyed, this says. So, obviously, the 70th seven does not immediately follow the 69th seven. There's a gap now between the 69th seven and the 70th seven. And in this gap, number one, Jesus is crucified. But also within this gap, the people of the city, that ruler that comes, will destroy Jerusalem. The people, historically, are the Romans, the ruler, Emperor Titus, who in A.D. 70 completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus foretold in Matthew 24 that that was exactly what was going to happen. He said, not one stone standing there at the base of the temple, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Okay, now we know the gap between the 69th and the 70th week, or 7, is at least a 40-year gap because... Jerusalem wasn't destroyed until 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion. So, the gap's getting a bit bigger. And again, in the gap, Jesus was crucified. In the gap, Jerusalem was destroyed. And thirdly, it says here in the gap, there would be war and desolation that would continue. So, that implies now the gap is for an indefinite amount of time. So, it appears, it appears if we have interpreted this right, that right now, we are currently living in the gap because wars have not ever ceased. So when will the gap end and the 70th seven begin in order to complete the prophecy? Well, that's what the last verse is about. Look at what it says in verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Now here's the 70th seven, okay? In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple he'll set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out upon him. Now, when you read that, you think he, that's talking about that Roman ruler, Titus, in verse 26, who destroyed the temple, utterly destroyed the temple and the city of Jerusalem. The thing, though, is Titus never made a covenant with the Jewish people. He didn't make a covenant with them for seven years, nor break it in the middle of those seven years by putting an end to the temple sacrifices. In fact, that would have been impossible. Why? Because he destroyed the temple where the sacrifices are made. So how could he put an end to it? when there was no temple to even make a sacrifice or to make an offering. He had already destroyed it. So that means this he in verse 27 is referring to somebody else because the temple was never rebuilt after A.D. 70. And so he must be somebody that's in the future because we're still in this gap. We're still in this pause between the 69 sevens and the 77s. The fulfillment of this uniquely Jewish prophecy has been suspended. Why? Why? We don't have time, so I'm going to cut to the chase. The reason is for the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles so the full number of the church could be brought in. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 24. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all peoples, all ethnic, every people group, and then the end will come. So after the members of the church from all peoples are fully gathered in, then the prophecy will start to click again. The time clock will turn back on. Click, click, click. The prophecy will start to unfold again with one final seven years of suffering and persecution for the Jewish nation and also for the world, which sounds a lot like a seven-year period mentioned elsewhere in the Bible called the great tribulation. So again, who is he of of verse 27 who makes this seven-year covenant with the Jews and then breaks the covenant halfway through the seven years and sets up an abomination that causes desolation. Now we talked about that last week. Do you remember that? We learned last week from Daniel 8 that that phrase is a reference to the Antichrist who apparently desecrates a rebuilt temple in the 70th seven. So there's going to be a rebuilt temple according to this. There'll be sacrifices again. He'll make an agreement with the Jews. Halfway through that period, he'll break that agreement. Who is this guy? It's the Antichrist. It says at the end, though, of the 70th seven, his end, his judgment will be poured out upon him. And that takes us all the way back to Daniel chapter 2, right where we began. In Daniel 7, too, I guess. Years earlier, though, Daniel chapter 2, that vision that, or dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interpreted, do you remember that? Early on in the study, God, God revealed to Daniel that the final human kingdom on the earth, the kingdom of the Antichrist, will, will, will come to an end because it's going to be crushed by a rock that is not hewn. In other words, a rock of divine origin. Now, who could that rock be? (laughs) And after crushing the Antichrist, that kingdom to come through the rock will grow into a huge mountain that fills the whole earth, setting up a final kingdom of all kingdoms, the perfect kingdom of God, with the perfect ruler, Jesus Christ, and He will reign forever and ever and ever. Let me close with a couple exhortations. The first one is this, God's timetable, He has a timetable, He has a plan for the human race, and He's perfectly working all of that out, His will out, His plan out according to that timetable. That doesn't mean, though, that we're always able to understand every nuance of His timetable or see His plan, but we do know this. We know that one day Jesus Christ will return, and all who are in rebellion against Him, all who have resisted Him, all who have not believed in Him will be judged. That day is coming. We know that. We, right now, however, live in a day where God's mercy is still available through Jesus Christ, It's still available, but it's not going to be an endless day. And that's why Scripture exhorts us to know that this is the day of salvation right now. There is not always a guarantee in the future. And one day that will come to pass. And in your life it's also true. You don't know how much time you have left. Today is the day of salvation. Today is. And that salvation comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is this. We have sinned against God. We are guilty of that sin. We deserve divine judgment. But instead of God judging us, He sent His Son who took our judgment on the cross. And when we believe in His Son, we are forgiven all of our sins and given eternal life. Jesus came to live the life we should have lived but couldn't, and to die the death we should have died. But he did it for us instead as our substitute. And if we believe that, the Bible says, you will be saved. That's the gospel. Now, if you've never believed the gospel before, today is the day. Today's the day. I want to lead you in a prayer, and then I want to close with one more exhortation. If you've never believed the gospel, I'm not saying you've never been to church, I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm saying if you've never believed that Jesus died for your sins that you needed that death on your behalf in order to be forgiven you needed him to take your penalty your place so that you could be forgiven you can do that right now the bible says it's by simple faith that we believe simple faith and belief is is experienced when we confess what we have believed. So let me leave you in that right now. Let me lead you in a little confession. If you've never never believed on Christ, you don't have to even close your eyes. But you do have to believe what Christ has done for you. I believe, let's say, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sin and that he rose from the dead for my salvation to make me right with God. God. I believe that. that. Therefore I'm a child of God God. by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 One more thing before we close. God works out His plan according to His own timetable, but He also works that through people. We talked about this earlier. God is a sovereign God, but He also uses means to work that sovereign plan out. And guess what? You are God's means. You know, that means that how we live for God and what we do for God counts in the plan of God. It's not meaningless. It's meaningful. All of it is God's means to fulfill His sovereign will. We may not see how all that works out. Or how it makes a difference, but it does. It matters. Our obedience matters. Let me ask you a question. Did Daniel's obedience matter? You're no different than Daniel. Our devotion matters. Our prayer matters. Our, our serving matters. Our, our fighting the good fight of faith matters. Our getting up after we've been knocked down matters. It matters. Our witnessing matters. Our... Training our kids up to follow the Lord matters. Our our working our job under the Lord matters. Our loving our neighbor as ourself. It all matters. Our love for one another matters. And our standing on God's truth matters. Divine sovereignty does not mean everything's on autopilot, folks. And God's sovereign plan uses your prayers. He uses your obedience. He uses your serving. He uses your faithfulness. So let me close with an exhortation from Galatians 6. Since that is the case, let us not become weary in doing good. What's that? Those things that matter. Let us not become weary in doing the things that matter. For at the proper time, we will, you will, reap a harvest if we do not give up, therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. I'd like our prayer team to come forward. If you need prayer for anything this morning, we're going to be up here at the end of the service. I want to remind all of you who are participating today in the introduction to membership class. We'll be meeting in about 15 minutes in the student center. Safe travels, everyone. See you next week.